Empathy is knowing our own dark Words have power. Like Without they that have connection, you don't have anything. What's the opposite of addiction? It's freedom. Dr. Ilardi. Yeah, please, please call me Steve. Steve, uh, the title of your book, The Depression Cure, seems like a pretty bold title. Uh, it certainly caught my attention uh, when Brandon first uh, handed it to me. I was wondering if you could speak to that, because I'm sure that's with some intention. It's actually been the source of a lot of conflict yeah. um, between me, my literary agent, my publisher. They love the title. Um, I really don't like it. And uh, my wife and I have actually had lots of, lots of talks about I mean, I, I want to change it. Um, I've been in talk with the publisher about doing a revision of the book. And, okay. um, you know, the, what my agent said, uh, well, actually, let me back up. What I said to my agent is, look, Depression is this treacherous illness. Um, it robs people of so much that they value in life. And, and for so many, it actually robs them of their will to live. And I don't want to have a title of a book that makes it sound as if there's a promise embedded that if you read this book, you are guaranteed to be cured of this treacherous illness because that's not what any sane clinical researcher would ever want to promise. That sounds like somebody selling snake oil. Um, you know, the, 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 the little grain of truth behind the title, though, is that there are people on the planet that have been studied that have often very challenging lives, and yet they don't seem to suffer from depressive illness the way we experience it. Um, and we can go into, you know, a, a whole lot of details about why that would be. Why are there people living in the highlands of Papua New Guinea or in the Amazonian rainforest that have hard lives, but they don't get clinically depressed. It doesn't mean they don't get sad. It doesn't mean they don't have uh, bereavement. They don't grieve when they, of course they grieve when they lose a loved one, but they don't get struck down by this senseless illness that just robs people for month after month, year after year of, of their life. Um, so the kernel of truth in that title is that there is a way in which people are living a type of active cure um, that's both preventive and it turns out from much of what we know about modern clinical neuroscience, so many things about the way we live affect the brain in such a profound way that they can actually have antidepressant effects on brain function. So they, they can be curative in that sense. Okay. So what, what would the title of your book be then if, if you were in charge of titling it? I don't know if you're comfortable sharing that. But. Sure. Oh, wow. Uh, so <laughs> it depends on whether or not my publisher is going to be listening to this podcast. Okay. If, if it's going to be a real big hit, then, then I better be a little more careful. But um, I think we're safe so okay, far. So like, far, <laughs> yeah. So this is the first one. But yeah. you never know when something's going to go viral. If it goes viral, then, then it will help you solve your problem. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Okay. Um, well, I, you know, one thing I thought about was something... Okay, every, every alternative title that I came up with, my agent, my publisher, and my wife all said, that's boring. So, <laughs> so things like healing depression. You're like, oh, yeah, that's boring. Um, you know, um, lifting depression. Uh, th things that really get at this, this sort of the goal of my clinical work, my clinical research. I mean, for all of us as clinicians, these are the things that... that that get us up in the morning and that we have passion about, but we, we don't ever want to overhype or oversell or, you know, promise something. Now, that, that 
we think it might be in doubt. Um, what I will say is somebody who's, you know, I, I got my, my degree, uh, my PhD in clinical psych in 1995, so 23 years ago, I've seen hundreds of depressed patients. And I can tell you I'm more excited about this particular treatment protocol in terms of both the short-term and long-term effects than any other thing that I've ever been a part of. In my graduate school training, I, I, I got a high level of training in a type of treatment that most of your listeners will know about, CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, I got to such a high level of training that I was actually doing training workshops in CBT for depression at APA. So I know that protocol really, really well. And it, it, it's okay. It, you know, some people do respond favorably um, in the short term and, and, and some of them even in the long term. But it's not like the majority of depressed patients who do CBT are going to be permanently in remission. It's just, you know, it, it's helpful, but it's not a miracle cure. Ditto for the drugs, by the way, which are about as effective as CBT. Um, and I took a class at Duke in clinical psychopharmacology. And so I, I know a lot about meds. My wife is a full-time psychopharmacology prescriber. She's a med maven. So you can imagine the conversations we have around the dinner table. Um, but she's taken in recently to telling her patients, like she'll hand them a script and say, look, if you just take this drug and don't change anything about the way you live your life, the odds are not in your favor in terms of being able to go into complete remission and stay there. So, you know, she's very realistic with her patients about the data behind these medications is not all that exciting. It's like they do help somewhat for some people, but they're not like this, you know, miracle cure that a lot of people think and that we all wish they were. So I, kind of ironically, I used to work for Eli Lilly as a pharmaceutical oh. rep wow. uh, selling Prozac. Um, well, those were good times back at Those back were good times. And actually, <laughs> I worked through the good times to the bad times uh, for that particular company. Um, and certainly, I mean, certainly what stands out for me was the hyperbole the pharmaceutical company would use. And then their, their studies um, were all like uh, funded by Eli Lilly. Exactly. almost had a prearranged outcome before the study. Oh, it's incredible. And it, yeah, well, it is And really you probably, incredible. I don't know if, if you, you know, you probably know this, but some of your listeners may not. Um, when companies like Lilly and Pfizer and Merck and, you know, all the big players were, um, were trying to get FDA approval for their, their drugs, they had to file these studies with the FDA and submit their, their data, placebo-controlled, randomized placebo-controlled trials, and the FDA was sitting on this big database of all these trials of antidepressants. And um, they, you know, they wouldn't release it to the public because the drug company said, no, you can't release it. It's all proprietary. It's, you know, it's, our, it's our intellectual property. You can't. And the FDA is a public agency. They're you know, there on our tax dollar to protect the public good. So researchers petitioned the FDA under the Freedom of Information Act to get these data released. And what they found was absolutely remarkable, which was in about half the trials of these antidepressants that are being hyped and marketed as these miracle drugs, in about half the trials that the FDA was sitting on, the drug did not beat the placebo. And in about half of them, they did. Well, guess which half got published, right? So every single freaking study that the FDA was sitting on that the drug company had you know, been forced to conduct to get their FDA approval, 
every one where the drug happened to beat the placebo, then the drug company was really eager to get that published in a top journal, and then they would promote it, and, and the drug reps would come around with their shiny little glossy and hand it out to all the prescribers and say, look how great our drug is. See, it did so well. And it would be like, but don't pay any attention to the man behind the curtain. Nobody even knew that there was a curtain or a man behind the curtain, right. which was all of these negative trials that we now discover are sitting there. And once we look at the whole picture, what we find is this is the separation between the antidepressant and the sugar pill, the placebo, is like on average, for the average depressed patient, about three points on a 55-item clinical rating scale, which is to say barely clinically meaningful for the average patient. Now, you know, there, 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 are, there are some patients for whom, and I've seen it with my own eyes, where these drugs truly are miraculous in the benefit they bring. But for every one of those, there are a lot of patients where there's nothing. And by the way, there are also patients where the drug actually makes things worse. And we don't like to talk about that. But you know, there, there's activation syndrome. There are people that get really agitated on the drug. They get akathisia, they get, you know, and you've seen it, I'm sure. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, yeah, there, there, there are all kinds of things that we sweep under the carpet as a profession because we want our, I think, well, there are all kinds of reasons. The drug companies want to keep selling their product. I think those of us who are not on that side of the business, we just want our patients to stay hopeful and to feel like, no, you know, we have all these powerful tools. My feeling is, as a clinical researcher, I've been in this business 27 years now, is we need to be honest with ourselves about how much these treatments leave to be desired. And that really was, was part of the impetus behind So I went from being NIMH-funded doing clinical neuroscience. I was looking at doing like um, basically hemispheric lateralization research, looking at like how does your left hemisphere process information when you're depressed, different from your right hemisphere. When it, because it turns out that like the right hemisphere specializes in negative autobiographical information. So you can find these imprints of depression in the right hemisphere if you just like tap into it. There's a way to do that with like divided hemifield presentation. I, I'm not gonna bore you with all the gory details. But I went from that to doing treatment outcome research because I finally just got so frustrated with like CBT doesn't have the greatest long-term outcomes and the meds don't. And even if you combine them, they don't, even together, they don't have the greatest. And then I read about people groups like the Kaluli in Papua New Guinea, in New Guinea who don't suffer from the burden of depression. And I bumped into this construct for medical epidemiology um, where, you know, these, these physicians have looked at disease burden of peoples all over the world and they find, oh, people that are in affluent countries like the US and Europe that are rich and industrialized and Western and, 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 and um, modern, we have our own characteristic diseases that people who live more like our ancestors just don't seem to have. And I finally had this aha, this epiphany moment a little over a decade ago where it's like, oh, depression fits that pattern. Depression, just like, say, uh, type, two uh, 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 type 2 diabetes or obesity or fibromyalgia, depression is one of these diseases that's hugely overrepresented in places like the U.S. and virtually unheard of in people that live the way our ancestors lived. So then it's like, okay, well, if we start thinking of depression as this disease of civilization, then maybe it's, it's foolish for us to think that we can get people well just by throwing a medication at it, any more than, say, heart disease. You know, if we have a typical person with heart disease, 
and we just, you know, we give them an angioplasty and we give them a stent and we throw some meds at it, some statins. And if we're just like, well, yeah, but just keep eating the way you've always e eaten and keep sitting on your couch and, you know, doing all the things you've always done. It's like, guess what the modal outcome for that heart patient is? They're going to die of heart disease. You know, even though we've treated it with the best that, you know, Western medicine has to offer, and we may buy them a little bit of time, but we haven't cured their heart disease. And yet, if they started living the way the Yanomamo live or the Kaluli, they would cure their heart disease because those people don't get heart disease because, um, you know, it's a disease of lifestyle. I think depressive illness is a disease of lifestyle and that we were never designed for this 21st century, sedentary, indoor, socially isolated, screen-addicted, fast food-laden, sleep-deprived pace of modern life. and. You know, so how, how long before we evolve into being genetically predisposed to live this way? Because it seems like with virtual reality and other things heading down the pike, like it isn't going to be like it seems like the trend is toward increasingly sedentary. It's true. Natural selection, um, genetic evolution normally takes place on pretty large timescales. You know, we, we might think like a fast evolutionary change would take place over 5,000 years. So for example, five to 10,000 years ago, some people started herding livestock and started having access to dairy and milk products for the first time after weaning, after age four, say, for the first time in human history. But the, the standard issue human being cannot process dairy after age four. They're lactose intolerant. They don't keep producing lactase after age four. Well, some genetic mutants had variations on some of the lactase genes that allowed them to keep producing lactase till they were 20. And that was a huge adaptive benefit, right? So there was selection pressure. And now we have a whole host of folks whose ancestors are from parts of the world that, you know, were dairy farmers for 10,000 years or 5,000 years. And they can, you know, they're lactose tolerant. Um, but that's like five to 10,000 years. And we view that as like lightning fast in evolutionary okay. terms. So, so four generations into being sedentary is, is no, nowhere two near. seconds in. And in fact, I would say, and this is probably not a rabbit hole you want to chase down right now, but with, with, uh, the, the possibility now of, of real time gene editing, uh, technologies that some of your listeners may have heard of like CRISPR has nine and, some other gene editing technologies where we can actually go in and change letter by letter in the human genome and probably within the next 10 years we'll be able to do it to a fertilized zygote. In other words, for in vitro fertilization, you could have a fertilized egg, go in and gene edit that egg, implant it in, in the womb. Um, we are going to be directing our own genetic evolution way before any evolutionary change is going to happen naturally on this front. So we could design sedentary people? We could in principle, once we figure out exactly what, what the requisite genes are. Yeah, I think in principle we could design people who would at least be robustly resistant to all of the enormously adverse physiological consequences of being sedentary. We're designed right now with these Stone Age, largely Stone Age Pleistocene genes, that expect us to be moving vigorously for like hours a day. They expect our, I mean, our bodies are designed to be moving. And so when we keep them sedentary for most of the day, 
then we run into all kinds of problems in terms of like glucose utilization, we develop metabolic syndrome and insulin resistance and all kinds of problems with neural signaling. And we, we wind up, you know, with high rates of obesity and high rates of illnesses like depression. Yeah, in principle, I think eventually there could be a genetic fix for that. I, that's not my preferred solution. I'd rather, I'd rather instead engineer society in such a way that we could make, make it the default easy thing for people to do to be physically active the way it was for our ancestors. Because it's not like modern-day hunter-gatherers like the Kaluli or the Yanomami. It's not like they have more willpower than we do. It's not like they're better people or they're strong. I mean, they, they're active because they, they need to be. If they didn't need to be, they wouldn't. And we know this. How? Because when Aboriginal peoples are kicked off their ancestral lands and put on reservations and given access to calorie-dense foods that we have, they're fine with the food. They like the food, and, you know, and then they, they get sedentary. And they quickly develop epidemics of obesity and diabetes and all of our illnesses, and they get depressed just like we do. Um, so I would rather than, I mean, the problem with re-engineering the genome is there are all kinds of potential unintended consequences, oh, yeah. and there's just too much we don't know yet. I don't think it would be, I mean, I don't think the science, the technology to make those genetic changes will be there within 10, 20 years. The science to do it safely probably won't be there for a couple generations, if ever. So I'm not going to be a big fan of that approach. That makes sense. Like, I, I was just kind of curious about that. Um, some other, like, to transition away from that a little bit, um, something that stood out to me as I was listening to you speak today is uh, I, I love to backpack. And there was a big part of me that's like, this feels like is getting as close to some of these cultures that you described yeah. as you can get, where you throw everything on your back, you have prearranged meals, uh, they're pretty well thought out, they're meant to be kind of high protein. Yep. Uh, calorie dense in a way, but you're using, I'm using the calories and the elation, like I, I threw hiked the Wemanuchi Wilderness uh, 100 miles. Oh, wow. Um, a few summers ago. And oh, I mean, I felt yeah. amazing after. Ditto. I mean, I haven't done that hike. Yeah. But, but, you know, when I've been immersed in nature and active, like at Yosemite, um, at Yellowstone about five years ago, I mean, it just, I, I came back at the end of that week and I told my wife, I said, this is the best I've felt just, and, and, and I normally feel fine, but I just, it was like, it just took it to a different level. I just, it just, this deep sense of well-being, like I was just meant to live this way. Yeah. It was amazing. And you wake up. Kind of when the sun starts exactly. to come up, and you don't yeah. even don't need a watch, right? And you go. It is amazing when it starts to get dark, and you it, have this powerful sleep drive. Yeah, like it, when I backpack with my son, I'm like, okay, when we can count twenty stars because we're that tired, we can count twenty stars. We can go to the because he's so tired by the That's time we're funny. done. And and uh, well, uh, yeah, and I, I I so resonate with what you're saying. And one of the things I I, I say is a little bit of a shorthand for my students to help them think about what was life like for hundreds of thousands of years for your paleo Paleolithic ancestors. It's like your ancestors were on a lifelong camping trip. Right. They were with their 30 to 50 closest relatives and friends. They were all in it together. And they spent all their time outdoors. And they were just immersed. And... I don't want to overly romanticize it because there are things about that that I think are really challenging. And like, 
you know, they're, they had a lot higher burden of parasitic infection and illness, and that was a big deal. Um, you know, and, and it's well, not like I want to go live as a hunter-gatherer. You know, right. I, I don't, but I think that there is so much we can learn from them. Well, and I, I've done some winter camping, and like, that is oh. really tough. Oh, yeah. Like, it, you know, the nights are so long. So cold. And so cold, and I don't know. Yeah. I think you burn fat pretty quick. <laughs> Shaking and cold. And oh, my God. Yeah. No, absolutely. So it's like, no, I, w- I want to keep my laptop. You yeah. know, I, I want to keep... Um, Netflix. <laughs> I want. I want to. I want to keep a lot of things that we just appreciate about the twenty first century. I want us to have the best of both worlds, you know. And I want our patients to be able to import the things from the ancestral milieu into the present and weave them into the fabric of day to day life in the twenty first century. Um, and 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 to be clever about it. Because if we did it in a non-clever way, it could feel like, oh, God, this is like this huge, burdensome project. It's going to take hours of my time every day. And none of us have that time or energy or effort or willpower, and particularly not clinical patients who are battling with syndromes like depression that rob them of their energy and motivation anyway. So I'm all about looking for life hacks, looking for little shortcuts, ways to, like, how can we get the most bang for the, the sort of the, you know, the metaphorical buck of, of, of effort. Yeah, and you, you, have a, you have a concept, when you were talking about rumination, mm-hmm. uh, just, just this last week as I was actually thinking of getting this podcast going and I was ruminating. It was, mm. you know, it was probably two in the morning and I remembered something somebody had talked to me about was, the, was thinking of gratitudes, but um, this woman asked me to do gratitude, alphabet gratitudes. Just find mm. something that I'm grateful for that starts with A. Oh, that's interesting. And I made it to P and I fell asleep. And it, and it complete, because I think you had talked in your talk about um, priming the pump. Yes. And like the alphabet thing seemed to prime the pump for me to like, give me to think, okay, what starts with A? What people start with A is where I started, but I couldn't yeah. think of anybody in that moment to then... Um, so what, were you grateful for, like, aardvarks? Or yeah, what? me, aardvarks. <laughs> That's a good question. I, I don't even remember in that moment what it was, but I, I was amazed at how quickly the rumination stopped. I stopped yeah, throwing I, up from my stomach into my other stomach. It, it's really, uh, well, so for, you know, uh, you, you feel like all your listeners are going to be really familiar with what rumination is and why it's toxic? Yeah, maybe talk about it. Well, okay, so, you know, rumination is just basically clinical shorthand for perseverating or dwelling on negative, typically negative thoughts, right? Uh, that's, what we, that's what we worry about people ruminating on. If somebody is, like, infatuated romantically and they're ruminating about their, you know, their schmoopy, we, we're going to let that one go probably. But, right. but um, when people are depressed, they ruminate usually about um, upsetting things that have happened in the past. If they're anxious, they ruminate about, things they fear or worry about in the future, potential threats usually that are down the road, like the podcast, yeah. all the things that have to get done. Um, and, you know, there's nothing intrinsically toxic about a little bit of rumination right after something upsetting happens. It's, you know, it can be helpful to kind of get a sense of, well, why did that happen? And what can I learn from it? And how can I make sure it doesn't happen again? All that. But when people are, have a clinical syndrome they make it a habit and they're just dwelling on these thoughts all the time and then it just amplifies their negative mood and it 
amplifies their stress response, so they're, they're, you know, their, their stress circuits are, are uh, on overdrive. And it becomes a habit, and it becomes a really toxic habit. And a lot of times people don't even know they're doing it because it's like so ingrained. It's just like when you drive that really familiar route and you pull up in the driveway, and you haven't even been paying attention. You don't even know like how you got there. You just, I mean, I think everybody, right? You oh, just yeah. pull in Mind the driveway. Us, yeah. like, like why? Because it's overlearned. It's a habit. And people ruminate that way. And, you know, it's really hard to change that, that habit. And when we're depressed, what happens or when we're anxious is the mood drives the thinking. And we don't realize that so much of our thought process is governed by our current mood state. And if it's a very strong negative mood, then it primes all of our memories and all of our associations that match that mood. So if I'm in a strong, anxious mood, then I'm primed with all kinds of cues about threats and things that have gone wrong and all the things that could go wrong and, you know, and it's effortless. I'm not primed for gratitude though, right? If, and so if I'm ruminating, one thing I know is it's not gonna be easy to think about things that I'm grateful for. But if I deliberately take a step back and say, I'm going to force myself to think about what am I grateful for in this moment? And I love this alphabet thing. I yeah. haven't heard that one before. But like, you know, what am I grateful for that starts with the letter A? Um, I hope my wife doesn't tune in because I just thought for some reason, I, I've always um, thought the actress Amy Adams <laughs> is, is particularly... She um, was great. What was... Uh, that was that uh, alien movie? The Alien yeah. movie. What was that called? They're like uh, Arrival. Thank you. It starts with yeah. A too. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, um, but like if I'm in a really dark place and brooding and ruminating, and I can get myself to think about, oh, that's a really talented person who brought a little bit of joy into my life and that of other people, and then I move on to B, and it's like, oh, well that's easy because I love NBA basketball. B for basketball. Got it. Uh, yeah. Thanks for explaining. Yeah. That. Well, because it's like, oh, dude, no, you're 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 on N, and we're not there yet. Um, I, I mean, I could replay in my mind's eye the last five minutes of the 2008 NCAA championship game, where you know, I'm at the University of Kansas. You know, and Kansas oh, yeah. won the national title. That's not NBA, but several of the guys played in the NBA. Um, all right, it's going to start slowly priming not only the mood that goes with gratitude, but then other thoughts that are way less congruent with rumination. And it's going to interrupt it. And it's, it's just, there are lots of ways of interrupting rumination. That's just one of about five or six different tools, but it's a really powerful one. It's one I, I mentioned in the talk today. Um, I'm a little embarrassed to say, I didn't think about when, when, when we first developed the TLC protocol, it was not in our toolkit. It was one that was brought from a patient um, who um, had gotten it from somebody at her church. And I don't know if it had just made the rounds in church circles or something, but um, it it's really powerful. Yeah, it is. I, I know my, remember, I think I told you I got through P and then I woke up in the morning. Like whatever yeah. it was, like it allowed me being tired to take back over. And yeah. I was like, I don't know what the, I don't know what happened. And I don't know what the neuroscience is of that, but. <laughs> Well, Ruminating stopped, and then I could just be tired and fall asleep. Well, so what it takes to fall asleep um, is a tired body and a quiet mind. And so if we're ruminating, we don't have a quiet mind. But do we need to stop? Okay. If we're ruminating, we don't have a quiet mind. 
But if, if we're doing something that's a little bit mentally taxing, like you talked about, um, you know, going through an entire alphabetic series, um, it's a little mentally demanding, but not in a way that's arousing. It's not in a way that's going to keep us awake. You basically got yourself to a place where you had not only a, a kind of a, a, a tired mind, but a still mind. Um, and because I'm real familiar with the alphabet. I don't have to think real exactly. hard about that. So, yeah. so you're just on autopilot. But you had to exert a little bit of effort and thinking about, well, what am I grateful for, for you know, with this letter? And, um, and it almost it reminds me a little bit of some of the ancient wisdom of people that do repetitive kinds of uh, meditative things or prayer like a, a, a prayer wheel or a, a rosary or, you know, just something that's repetitive and rhythmic that we don't have to think about too much. It can have a very calming, soothing sort of effect. So I think you might have inadvertently got, got a little benefit from that as well. We'll take it. All right, the, kind of the last question I had, and then Brandon, I know I've been dominating the questions, but. Okay. Um, I don't, the people of, I don't know, is tribes the right word? I don't know what word to use. The, the tribes, the bands. Yeah. The, well, the, so, you know, it's a great, great. So my understanding, and I'm not an anthropologist, but the, most of the people who work in this area prefer the term, um, for the smallest unit, which would be like sort of immediate and extended family yeah. of 30 to 50, a little hunter gatherer band but that bands are usually not on their own. It, it would be almost impossible to survive a band of 30 on their own. Mm. They are linked by marriage and uh, um, treaty often, defense, mutual defense treaties, um, with other related clans that okay. form a tribe. Okay. So when we talk about, say, the Kaluli people of Papua New Guinea, yeah. The tribe of the Kaluli is about 2,000, but that subsumes several interconnected bands of 30 to 50 to 70 to, you know. So, <clears throat> I mean, certainly as I, it, going through your book, like, it, it, I think connection with other people was part of uh, your plan. And, and certainly, um, the one thing about the clans that I guess that kept I kept thinking about was um, how homogenous they are, monolithic mm -hmm. or whatever, where they yeah. all, I mean, they, there yeah. isn't much diversity. They all, they, they're all doing the same thing over. Yeah. That, that's really interesting. It, it turns out, I think, yes, there's, there's a lot to that, but there are all kinds of examples in the, um, ethnographic record, the, the anthropological record of bands that will adopt members that are not genetically related, that may look a little different, um, that you know may on the surface not be their genetic kin, but they are fictive kin. And for them, that's real. Um, now, there's some really famous stories of um, European settlers in the Americas that were bumping right up against Native American tribes um, that would on occasion have traditions where if they lost one of their warriors in battle with these European colonists, they would kidnap one or more of the children um, of these colonists to raise as their own. 
as a spiritual replacement for their warrior son who had been killed. And you might think there would be some hard feelings, some, you know, vindictiveness, some vendetta or something. But as, as far as we can tell, um, that's not what happened. They were fully embraced as a member of this. Like if you're part of this band, you have our back, we have your back, we're in this together, our survival depends on everyone's loyalty. And there was this deep feeling of belonging that you hear people, and I don't want to romanticize combat or combat platoons or the military, you know, but I grew up in that world. My, my father was, was a career officer in the Air Force and a squadron commander, served in Vietnam. And you do hear that when it's at its best, there's a kind of sense of belonging that happens among combat platoons, this band of brothers, this, you know, we're in this together. And sometimes upon returning to civilian life, I mean, yes, there's this feeling of it's nice not, not to be shot at all the time. It's nice not to have to worry about being exploded by an IED, but a sense of loss of something crucial, this loss of belonging, this loss of purpose and meaning. And I, I would say we all have a primal craving to belong to something bigger than ourselves. And I think that sometimes that's a very hard thing for Americans to find. I think some people can find it in religious communities with the right kind of religious community and the right binding ideology maybe. Um, there's a way in which some people get that sense of, oh, we're in this together and you know, it's like um, we belong to this really important thing that's bigger than us. But for a lot of Americans, increasingly, that's not an option that they find appealing. And um, it's just really hard to get elsewhere. But I think it's, it's, it's a gaping hole in modern American life that we need to be more wise about naming and seeing and addressing. And I think those of us in the clinical community maybe need to, I think we've been under attentive to how important it is for people to have that sense of community and belonging. Well, and I mean, talk about a hard thing to life hack, too. Yeah. Like, I'm not sure there's a quick fix for a sense of belonging or a sense of importance. There, or, there's not. And, yeah. and um, not that I know of, anyway. Not that I know of. Now, fortunately, I don't think it's important to get that to recover from depression. I think it's maybe more important to find that to get resilient and, 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 and protected against future depression. Back to religion, uh, one thing we know is that people who belong to religious traditions where they have a strong sense of community are dramatically less likely to get depressed again um, because they have that social connection, they have that community. Um, now, for our depressed patients, you know, while they're depressed, the thing we work on acutely, the hack that's so helpful for most people, is while they're depressed, their brain is telling them to pull away from other people. In other words, the brain is telling them, the depressed brain is saying, hey, it's like you're sick. You need to like shut down and crawl into a cave somewhere and cut all your ties. And it turns out to be a really, really poisonous sort of message that they're getting. And so if we're lucky, the person with depression has social connections that they've let go. Maybe not completely, but maybe, you know, friends that they 
haven't accepted those invitations. They've, you know, friends have initiated five times, hey, let's go do this thing, and they're like, ugh, that's really nice, but I just don't feel like it. Um, and then the friend quits asking. You know, but those are ties that can be, we've found, almost always picked back up. Um, and so we, we focus on those kinds of connections a lot more. And we, you know, we can work on the belonging piece later on in recovery. Yeah, the more broad existential questions. Like, as you were talking, I did, another thing that I constantly feel like I run into, obviously depression just metastasizes and spirals down, it seems mm -hmm. like, as, as I think you alluded to today. Um, and then sometimes I use like a physics term of like overcoming that initial inertia. Seems yeah. like it takes so much energy. Exactly. And once, once the spiral starts unwinding itself, it gets easier, right? Exactly. When, when sleep schedule gets yeah. regulated and all that. And you build momentum. Yeah, you build momentum. But man, that initial inertia where you get almost no reward. Exactly. For that first walk you do right. for a half hour briskly. Yep. How, like how, how do you get people going? I guess like that. that yeah. I well, myself it's, it's one of the, it's one of the most pressing clinical challenges I was, especially for people that are very severely depressed, they have very low energy and in initiative. One thing that we found really helpful is meeting in groups um, where people have that social connection to others that are, for want of a better term, kind of cheering them on. The other thing we've done is, um, in the middle of every week, so we meet once a week in the group, but in the middle of the week, we let patients know ahead of time, you're going to get a brief coaching call from one of the two group therapists that are going to, we can schedule it if you'd like, just gonna to touch base for five minutes. Just, you know, not to nag or, you know, anything else, but just to touch base. And, and if you've run into any roadblocks, you know, anything that's kind of, you feel like is in the way of you're putting this thing into practice. Because we have like one new thing that we want them to, to implement. And the first week, it's really pretty easy. It's like, we want you to start taking this omega-3 supplement. Yeah. And, but you know, for some people, it's like, oh, I keep forgetting. It's like, okay, well, we can, we can, we can problem solve that. We can troubleshoot the, it's like, okay, well, where can you leave the bottle where you're going to be reminded? How about, do you brush your teeth every day? You know, hopefully the answer is <laughs> yeah. yes. Maybe not. So far, it's always been yes, whether, whether or not that's yeah. true or not, I don't know. But, but everybody says they do. Um, so it's like, well, how about if you put the bottle, the supplement bottle, like right next to your toothbrush so that there's no way you can get your toothbrush without running into it. And just when you run into it, you take it then. Okay, well, that, that's pretty easy. Yeah. Um, I, I think beyond that, I've got a colleague in China in a city, uh, it's often pronounced in, in English-speaking uh, parts of the world, Chungking. I don't, I don't know the Chinese pronunciation, but she's at a university there, and she contacted me, and we've been corresponding, and I've helped her develop a therapeutic lifestyle change program for her university there in China. And they have a social media platform that she thinks is way better than Facebook, which doesn't surprise me. Um, <laughs> and that makes it really, really easy to have secure private groups. And so when they have a TLC, a treatment group for depression, they have a, a group that everybody has access to that everybody goes on every day. 
to write a little encouraging note to someone else in the group. Because if you think about it, when you're depressed, it's really you almost it's almost impossible to write yourself an encouraging note because the negative self-talk is so loud at first. But virtually everyone with depression finds it intensely rewarding to do something that they think might be a benefit to somebody else. So if somebody posts like, hey, I remembered three days in a row to take my fish oil, or you know, maybe now we've moved on to using a light box. There are people, you know, it's like, oh, I got my light box and I've, you know, I was I figured out where to set it up and and you know, people like log in and they, you know, like put a little heart next to it or they're like, oh, that's great, you know, that you know, I was feeling discouraged, but now you've inspired me to blah blah blah, you know. And you can see where that could could be. Yeah, I thought it was a really brilliant uh, application. I, I'm not a big fan of social media for all kinds of reasons, but I do think at times it can be harnessed in ways that can be really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a potential hack for you for finding <laughs> finding a sense of belonging. Yeah, through Chinese social media. Yeah, ba- yeah I think she called it. Ba- <laughs> I think it was called Baidu. Was, was Baidu. I think that was the. Yeah, she sent me a link. I, if, let me know if, if, if you need it for your podcast. Yeah, okay. Brandon, what, what's popping in your head over there? Sorry. No, I, I love the conversation. I love the direction of it. I mean, um, it's super insightful, and I hope our listeners are, listeners are taking a lot out of it. And, I mean, just to you know, kind of peel back maybe to the definition of depression, I think mm. it's, um, as you talked about uh, today, um, you know, when I think... I don't want to be too broad stroke and say it's American culture or anything like this, but it, there does seem to be this tendency to, you know, buck up or chin up in the process mm-hmm. when somebody's feeling uh, depressed. And it sounds like from what you, you spoke about today and you speak about in your book that there's something very particular happening here that's separate from what we might perceive as sadness. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, you know, something I, I find myself talking about a lot more these days is just the way in which the word depression is just really unfortunate because it has its everyday colloquial use as just meaning basically, oh, I'm sad. And, you know, that we all know what it's like to feel sad because something upsetting happened, but that we also use it as a shorthand for this devastating depressive illness. So, you know, we still call it depression or we might say clinical depression or major depression or unipolar or major depressive, you know, but... We still use the term depression, except now people don't know what the hell we mean. You know, they're like, what? So are you saying, you know, that I'm sad? It's like, yeah, I know I'm sad, but it's way more than, I mean, it's so much more than just sadness. Depressive illness is this condition in which um, normal sleep architecture is profoundly altered. So the person doesn't get their normal restorative deep sleep and their hormonal function is altered and their attentional circuitry is altered, so they, they have trouble focusing, and their memory circuitry is altered, and their stress response circuits are in overdrive, so they've got way too much cortisol, and the cortisol is interfering with all kinds of brain circuits, and, and there's another hormone called CRH, corticotropin-releasing hormone, which starts perturbing dopamine signaling and starts perturbing serotonin signaling, and you know before you know it, you've got a person whose functioning is compromised in every domain. One of the stats I shared today that seemed to really shock people is that depressive illness is now globally the single leading cause of work-related disability. In the U.S., it's the single leading cause of disability 
for everyone under the age of 45 and is on a trajectory to be um, for any age group. The, I mean, it's, it's, and it also leads to tens of thousands of deaths every year through depression-linked suicide. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a really big deal. And, and sadly, most people that are suffering from this depressive syndrome don't fully understand it. Their friends and family can't really see their suffering. They are suffering. Their pain circuitry is lit up, so they're in agony. Um, but nobody can tell. And the other thing I, 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 I forgot to mention today, but I'm glad I have a chance to, to mention it here, is a lot of people with depression that's been going on for a long time, they kind of develop this ability to fake it a little bit because they're just so exhausted from trying to explain themselves to people that even though they're miserable, they can put on a little bit of a facade of like, they you know, might say like sort of acting okay. Like, like they won't let you know how much they're hurting. Um, and sometimes these folks are suicidal. Sometimes they'll kill themselves. And everybody's like, but, but Joe seemed all right. Like, you know, he was, he was kind of, like you said, sort of putting on this brave face or sucking it up or whatever. Um, it's really tragic that, you know, sometimes we have no idea the kind of pain that people are bearing all around us. And if we're so caught up in our own stuff that we don't even notice or we don't take the time to even check in in a real way, we'll, we'll be like, oh, how you doing? Mm -hmm. But we don't actually, right. we're not really asking how are you doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, and one thing comes to mind, you know, when I think about depression and a person truly suffering, um, a lot of the times we can, you know, turn on the television and there's some ad space for an antidepressant or something mm -hmm. that can, you know, I can, uh, you know, take a pill in the morning, take a pill at night, and I'm going to feel better in the process. And for somebody who's truly suffering, that sounds like a great solution, mm -hmm. um, a tactful solution in that regard. But it sounds like more so that... Um, in the case of the depression cure and what you're after is that we're looking for more of a process, um, more of a change rather than something instant. So I can see in this as well that when somebody hears the depression cure, and although it's tactful for your publisher right. and your publisher enjoys it, that somebody might be peeling through the pages quickly and looking for that golden nugget, golden nugget in the yeah. process. Um, what would you... Um, well, I, I'm all in favor of, of a quick fix if it exists, right? And so, you know... When I think about each of, so we have, we've built this lifestyle-based treatment protocol, or I would just say, you know, these modifiable domains in our lives that, that we can tweak that have antidepressant effects on the brain and on the mind. Um, I'm thinking for each of them, how long before it takes effect, you know, and how can we, how can we help people get better as quickly as possible? I'm, I'm not philosophically opposed to a quick fix. I'm not philosophically opposed to a magic pill or a miracle cure. I mean, you know, we hear a lot of hype these days about um, things like ketamine. Like, oh, well, you know, ketamine has this really super fast response rate. It's like, well, you know, when you really dive into the data on that, it's like, yeah, maybe a little bit, but it's not typically a sustained response for most people. There are lots of potential downsides to that. There are all kinds of potential addictive yeah. issues. With, <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> And possibly even um, neurotoxic effects of giving somebody high doses of ketamine week after week. It's not good for the brain. We know that. It's not rocket science. 
Um, so I'm not opposed to a miracle cure, but I just think we need to be really, really brutally honest. Um, in terms of things that actually work and don't hurt the brain, I would say probably light there, bright light, is probably the fastest thing we have, especially if somebody has winter onset depression due to light deprivation. Within five to seven days of getting 30 minutes of bright light exposure, and I mean, like, you know, you measure light in units called lux, 10,000 lux or more, um, 30 minutes in the morning, within five to seven days, they should be experiencing some benefit. Uh, physical activity, uh, exercise, for some people, will have some temporary mood elevating effects right away. We've had even some really severely depressed patients. Now they can't initiate exercise, but if you hook them up with a trainer and get them out there moving, so they don't have to think about it, they're just doing, just following what the person, because they're not gonna wanna do it. Mm -hmm. But they, they're willing to do it if somebody will help them, take them by the hand and help them through it. Um, after their first workout, sometimes they will say, 40 minutes later, I'm feeling better. Like that actually feels good. Now I'm a big fan of back to your hiking. You know, if you can get them out, like so. Imagine you, know, you take somebody, and you get to take them on a that's depressed. Take them on a brisk hike, out in nature. It's like okay, now you're getting bright light exposure, you're getting social support and connection, you're getting the exercise, and you're getting uh, immersion in nature, which has its own sort of restorative effects in turning down stress response circuitry, which is part of the problem in depression. So like just with a hike in nature, you could get like a quadruple whammy, which could have immediate mood elevating effects. It's not gonna cure them, mm -hmm. but it's gonna maybe be enough to break through their pessimism and their hopelessness and give them a sense of, oh my God, there are things that actually can move the needle. Like maybe, maybe this could work for me. Because part of the, the problem with depression is people get so hopeless. They get, to, you know, they get so, despondent of feeling like, well, this has been going on a long time. You know, I'm just, I'm, I'm done. Like, you know, I just, I'm, I don't think I'm ever gonna get better. Doctors don't know what they're doing. I tried the meds, it didn't help me. Or the side effects were too awful. Like, you know, whatever. And there are lots of potential side effects. And they jerked me around from this med to that med and this med and, you know, I'm done. And I tried to do therapy, but my therapist just sat there and listened to me. And, I wanted them to give me some advice about stuff I could do, and they just wanted to sit there like a nod and say, uh-huh, and you know, tell me more, and you know, sounded like, like you know, a Saturday Night Live skit. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they get hopeless. And you know, so many folks that we've worked with have been in psychotherapy, and they've been in, in, in pharmacotherapy, and nothing has helped. So you can imagine, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and I wanna validate that and say, yeah, you know, um, that's not unusual. And mm -hmm. yet, here are all kinds of things that we have really, really nice, robust research mm -hmm. to suggest that if we can find a way to help you start doing these things, they will make a difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They should make a difference. Now, yeah. if they don't, then, you know, let's treat this as a, as a detective mystery. You know, it's like, yeah, there are going to be those outlier cases where the person has an underlying medical condition that's driving their depression that nobody's ever picked up. You know, I mean, we picked up a sleep apnea one, one time. I mean, we, we pick it up. We were just like, you know, this person is not getting into remission. They're doing everything. It's helping, but it's not getting them where it should. There's something else going on. And then, you know, we started like, oh, they've got, you know, they snore and their spouse says they seem to stop breathing. And we're like, let's get a sleep yeah. consult. And, you know, once we got that catch, then it's like, yeah, the, 
their depression yeah. got better. Yeah, um, and, I, and I think it's interesting. I'm certainly one who loves um, looking at uh, reviews and things like that on uh, literature and what people have written. And, and when it comes to your book, it's not only well-read, it's, it's, it's well-reviewed in the process. And I do notice that um, some individuals um, seem uh, have conflict um, within the reviews um, to, um, to intend, let me restate it, that the reviews I see that I, th I think are sort of misunderstanding kind of the direction that you're taking the book have conflict with it because it feels like they've opened the book and have been scrolling for the, the golden nugget in there for uh. this cure process. But um, I think in reality, and I think the beautiful thing too, that many people are responding to these conflicts who've read your book and, and quite positively, hey, you know, take a look at uh, this page. Oh, it seems like a paragraph was missed for you here on this page. Um, and, I, and I think it's great that in the process that even though there's this uh, maybe title that you might want to change in hindsight or, you know, go back on that um, you did think about it when you put it together and it doesn't come out, I think, as the end for um, many individuals as you um, just trying to slapstick it in that way, that there was direction for this, there was thought um, and thinking well, about omega-3s and all that sort of stuff. Well, so. yeah, I mean, I, and I, I, in, the, in the very beginning pages of the book, the preface, you know, I'm very explicit in saying there is no one-size-fits-all cure mm -hmm. for, you know, and anyone who understands this illness is not in their right mind if they say they can promise you a cure, mm -hmm. you know. But, you know, I also said I, I've never seen someone yet put this full protocol into place without experiencing at least clinically significant improvement. Now, that may not take them to remission, which is really what I would only be satisfied with sustained, stable remission. That would be a cure. I've seen many patients get there. But when they don't, then I'm always thinking about, okay, well, um, you know, there are a lot of, I mean, literally dozens of medical conditions, nutritional deficiencies. Um, medications that they've been prescribed that can actually sustain depression that people don't even realize. Like they're, you know, they're taking Xanax or, or maybe they're, you know, smoking a lot of weed um, and it turns out the, the, the marijuana is actually sustaining their depression. They don't realize it. Now, I'm not saying, by the way, I'm not, I don't want to, I know this is Colorado. Yeah, you're Colorado uh, here. Go easy. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, I mean, you know, marijuana has, as, as you guys know, both THC and CBD, cannabidiol, and, and, and they have very different psychoactive effects that vary a lot from person to person and based on the ratio. And, you know, a lot of people don't realize, like, no, if you... With your neurochemistry, if you're getting the wrong ratio and you're doing this every day, it could actually be making you more anxious. It could actually be driving your stress response circuits in a way that are going to make it impossible for us to get you to recovery. By the way, I see this all the time with anxiety. THC, for a lot of, a lot of people, can really rev up their anxiety circuitry. CBD, I've almost never seen. CBD seems to actually have a soothing effect for most people that I've seen clinically. And, and also the research on that seems to support this. This is actually a discussion that we've been having actually ongoing and um, and obviously like we have to be able to mold and adapt in our field and obviously our field kind of comes from collapsing the dialectic as you put it and like it, it, it's unhelpful and, and honestly you know to back it up even further we're in the middle of an opiate crisis right. and that is real and uh, <laughs> um, and we may need to think of different things to think of.
Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, including how to look at success or what is how to, I don't know. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, if I can just give one more shout out for the benefits of uh, marijuana. Um, states that have adopted legalized marijuana have seen a drop in opiate overdoses. Um, because many people find that CBD will give them enough efficacy and pain management that they can get off the damn opiates mm. that they depend on because they're in agony. But if, if they can have the CBD there for that transition, they can actually often successfully stop taking the opiates. And, you know, for me, in terms of the scale of dangerousness and even sort of moral culpability, I just, you know, the pushing of opiates on our population is like a 10 out of 10 flagrant moral failing in my book. And for someone to want to criminalize something like CBD in the middle of an opiate epidemic, I'm not naming any names. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Uh, um, I mean, I've, we've been talking around them, but yeah. yeah. Um, I, you know, I, to me, it's, I can only assume like Socrates that it's in, informed purely by ignorance and not malice. Yeah. I, I'm not sure I'm right on that, but that's, yeah, that's, I, that's my I, charitable view. I appreciate. Yeah. And I, and I, and I, you know, I don't want to, I'm not going to dive off topic here. I know that would be inappropriate, but certainly when I, when I think about dialectics, I think about uh, the philosopher Hegel um, in this process oh and where he talked about uh, thesis uh, antithesis into synthesis and the important thing is that there's a dialect in this process and it collapses into something that we'll call a synthesis and it's okay to have opposing viewpoints yep. on whether it's uh, behavioral health or addiction or um, things like this so um, I just appreciate the concept of a dialectic and I, certainly I think our, our listeners well to you know especially if they know about Marshall Linehan's dialectical behavior therapy. Uh, <laughs> right. For DBT. Marshall so, Linehan brought, she made dialectics cool. Yeah. Um, you know, and I don't think it's any mistake that it was in treating borderline personality disorder mm -hmm. where one of the hallmarks is wanting to be all or nothing, black or white. Mm -hmm. um, you know, folks with borderline tend to just not see any of the nuance in between. And that ability to bring this other dialectical perspective of, no, you, you know, reality, it's like, no, light is a wave and a particle. And they seem to be completely contradictory, but they're both true. Even if you can't wrap your mind around how they're both true, they're both true. Right. And we'll have patients. I had a patient who had been sexually uh, abused by her father uh, for a short time, thankfully. And she told me about it. Um, it had happened when she was 11. And in the same session, she said, same session, within five minutes, she said, I hate my father and I love my father. Absolutely. And they were both completely true. Um, and, you know, we wrestle with the paradox clinically all the time that there are these truths that are in tension, that are seemingly opposed and yet they are both real. And, um, yeah, I, I just think it, it's such an important principle, maybe not just for clinical work, but just for life in general. <clears throat> I think we should probably land this thing. Yeah. I thought that was okay. a great landing. I loved it. Thank um, you. <laughs> Steve Alardi of uh, The Depression Cure, thank you so much for joining us.